So, let's talk about sex. And over these next four weeks, we're going to be talking about sex and sexuality and relationships and struggle and pain and loss and joy. We're going to be talking about all of those things. So the first thing I want to say as I introduce this is it is a series. It's a series, series of four. So um, I, this morning, in the few minutes I have, I'm not going to cover everything. There'd be a dozen things I don't say. There'd be lots of things. You say, well, he never mentioned that, and he didn't talk about this, and what about that, and what about my circumstance, and he didn't mention this, and he didn't mention that. Of course, you'd need a volume. You'd need a year's master course in all of these things. So this is a series, so be here for as many of them as you can, and if you can't, there's always the podcast uh, to listen into. The second thing to say is this, that we're not all the same. In fact, we're all different. Sexuality, as you know, and as we constantly say in this church, is a spectrum, and everybody's in. The whole idea that you're heterosexual or homosexual, well, actually, there's many churches that haven't come to terms with that yet. But actually, that's kind of binary, isn't it? The truth is, in reality, that sexuality is on a spectrum. And so, in everything I say, please read in that I've already said that, rather than me having to keep repeating it. Um, The second thing, uh, the the third thing, is this, that um, in churches in particular, I think probably in other communities as well, but in churches, there's endless pressure to conform. And that pressure to conform uh, isn't a good thing. It isn't a good thing at all. Um, So um, we're going to be talking about that a bit. And the last thing to say is this. We all make mistakes in life. You know, I think Flick, in the prayers that she's uh, led, uh, when we came to that time of confession, she said, we are not the version of ourselves that we'd like to be. Hopefully, through our journey with Jesus, through following Jesus, we become more like the version of ourselves we want to be. As we allow him to impact us, when a lesser meets a greater and we're always the lesser, the lesser is always influenced by the greater. And that's why it's so important to belong to a community that's centered around Christ, for he constantly uh, inspires us and encourages us and challenges us and me on our journey together. So we've all made mistakes and I would hate anybody in all of this series that we're going to tackle in the next four weeks to build in any message, to, to um, go away with any message of guilt. Because actually the church is a community that celebrates forgiveness and moves on from it. Um, the, the funny thing, the, uh, one of the differences, I was thinking about this when uh, Flick was reading Psalm 51 to us. Do you know that Psalm was written by David just after he'd committed adultery with Bathsheba? And uh, not just adultery, but in the end, the murder of Bathsheba's husband as well. So, do you know, he was an adulterer and a murderer. And we celebrate him as the greatest king of Israel. And he wrote the lyrics to most of those songs we now call the Psalms. I always think of David as the Elvis of the Bible, basically. Do you know, he was just got, got it going down, hadn't he? But his life was flawed. 
and screwed up. Yet he clings to this thing all the time. And it's wonderful how that psalm works through. Because it starts by saying, my life's in a real mess. And then it moves quickly on to cleanse me and I'll celebrate you. In Jewish thinking, God is the God of forgiveness. And you can read Jewish prayers, you read those psalms, and they begin very often with, I am not who I should be and I've let you down, God. But they quickly move on to celebrate God's love, mercy, and forgiveness. I think that a lot of Christians get stuck in, my life's not what it should be. And we go round and round and round and round that groove. And endless people who talk about grace live their whole lives in a se- with a sense of condemnation and guilt. Because unlike the Jewish community, we somehow never get to the gracious bit. But that's where we should not only get to, that's where we should live. So, this morning... We're going to talk about sex and choosing a life partner. Um, Sex and choosing a life partner. um, Let me uh, say this at the beginning. As you know, as I've just said, this community uh, totally embraces um, L, G, uh, B, and T people. We are who we are. I'm right-handed, some people are left-handed. I was uh, this week in the, um, I've, this, I've spent this week in the States. I must tell you this story, got nothing to do with what we're going to talk about. But when we sang Amazing Grace, when Dan and the band sang Amazing Grace, uh, it, was fant- it was fantastic. Did you enjoy singing that song? It was brilliant. Well, this week, this sounds a bit like name-dropping, I was at a breakfast, uh, I was at a breakfast in Washington, and Andre Bocelli... Do you know who he is? He turned up at the breakfast and he stood up and sang. You know? So, um, if, before we have this breakfast, he stands up and he says, I'm going to sing Amazing Grace. And I'm thinking, I don't believe this. I'm at a breakfast. And Andre Bocelli is here and he's going to sing Amazing Grace. This is going to be incredible. And some guy gets on the piano and he starts, he starts playing quietly. And then Bocelli gets ready to sing. And he gets out the first two words, Amazing Grace. And there's a woman sat next to me who's so caught up in this, she starts humming. And she hums loudly and out of time and out of tune and in the wrong key through the whole flipping thing. I, and I was so... So there you go. So we sang... It, uh, that's the point. It just reminded me... At last this morning, I got to sing Amazing Grace and concentrate on what it's about. Grace. That's where we got to live. L, G, B, and T, and A communities. You know, the thing is, in some communities, churches can be like this. Everybody says, you should be married now. You should be married now. should be married. You're at the marrying age. You should be married now. What we have to be careful to do is never load someone with the expectation that a community wants from them what they are not comfortable with. The A community is the asexual community. I have um, several good friends who I've journeyed with through my whole life, well-known in Christian circles, actually very well-known in Christian circles. You'd know their names, and I know they're asexual. 
And I've watched them through the years because they've been prominent in Christian circles. I've watched endless people trying to fix them up with dates and deals and marry them off. We need, we need to respect one another through all of this. If you're a frustrated, a frustrated single person, life can often feel like this is what you're missing. Intimacy, togetherness. At first glance, actually, all of the research, and there's endless research around uh, life partnerships, marriage and life partnerships, all of the research seems to back this kind of picture up. All of it suggests that married people, more than people who choose to live together, married people who make a solemn vow together. There's several couples here uh, this morning who in the next few months, I've got the privilege of taking part in your weddings. And that's a fantastic thing. And as I say to every couple that I sit and talk about marriage with, I tell them those words, you know, I take you to be my lawful wedded husband or wife, to have and to hold for better or worse in sickness and health, to love and to cherish till we are parted by death. I tell them the truth, but those words aren't Christian words, actually. There were Christian words added to the vows and taken out. The only Christian words that were ever added to those great holy vows were when the wife said, and I promise to obey. Do you, do you know? And that became popular and it's put in. That comes from the Pauline epistles who told wives to obey their husbands. And then, of course, it went out fashion because we realized that Paul was talking about something bigger than just one person telling another person what to do. And so that line was lost. But all the rest of those vows is ancient. Actually, it arises out of the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament. Those vows are at least 3,500 years old. I mean, they've been adapted and updated and they've been translated into English and they've been joined together in new ways, but they are deep. And through the millennia, this has been held by people. And when that public commitment is made, because marriage is, of course, about community. You know, very often a, married, a couple getting married will say, this is our day. Do you know? This is our day. The bride will say, this is my day. I, I don't disagree with that. I think it's wonderful to say that. It's not altogether true, though. It's everyone's day. If you want your day, go live with your boyfriend. A marriage is about a whole community celebrating this holy, these holy vows that are undertaken. And it's about a whole community standing with you in that. So it is about you and it's about your mums and your dads and your brothers and your sisters and your aunts and your best friends as they wrap themselves around you. Just as we did this morning for Reuben. It was about, uh, it was about Marcus and Martha and Joel and Reuben, but it was about the grandparents and, and, and Sarah and it was about us all. Because we become the people we're meant to be when we're in community. Anyway, all of the evidence suggests that married people, it's said all the time, and it's true, all of the evidence, it always comes up with this, that married people are on average happier than single people and much happier than divorced people. The problem with the evidence is 
it doesn't dig deep enough. Because when you dig deeper than that, although that is true in general, the thing splits down. And as it splits down, deeper truths are found. The evidence suggests, let me say, that most married people, that suggests that married people are on average, that's the important term there, happier than single people and much happier than divorced people. But actually, I know married people who are much more miserable than the single people I know and far more miserable than the divorced people I know. And I'd like to explore that just a little bit. People... Because marriage is about quality. People in self-assessed poor marriages, where communication is poor and togetherness is poor, are much less happy than unmarried single people or divorced people. They're much less happy because they're locked into something which actually is a separation. The Bible says, the Jewish Bible, the Old Testament, the bit that we nicked from the Jewish people, the Old Testament says this. It says that God hates divorce. And the truth is that in a shallow sense, we've lifted that phrase, God hates divorce, and told people to stick at marriages whatever's gone wrong in them because God hates divorce. In truth, in context, and context is what we always drop when we read the Bible in a shallow way. In truth, in context, all that's happening, all that's happening there is that prophet is saying, God hates the breakdown of a relationship and the breakdown of cherishing and the breakdown of cleaving together and the independence of thinking that pushes people apart. So that is how divorce happens. God hates divorce, but it's the process, not the final recognition. Does that make sense? It's the process of neglect of a relationship that God hates. And I ought to qualify the word hate because God is love, so he doesn't hate. How can God hate? Because he is love. I once, well, I got to know, um, I got to know Jonathan Sachs, John Sachs, the, the, the former chief rabbi. And um, at, at that time, I was, I was speaking at an event with him one day, and I was getting into a lot of trouble in, from certain people within the church because I, I kept saying, God's not angry. God's not angry. The cross isn't about a vengeful, angry God getting his own back on people he doesn't like because the first page of the Bible tells us that God made us in our image, and he said it's very good. So um, that's what I was saying. I was getting into a load of trouble about it. And it got onto the radio a bit. And I was at this event uh, speaking with Jonathan Sachs, who was in office then. And he knew about this. And he's a wonderful, very wise man. And he said this to me. He smiled. We sat on the back row, both waiting to speak. And he turned to me and he said, Steve, he said, he was, he was being ironic. He said, you Christians, why don't you, why don't you Christians ever ask us Jews about the Jewish Bible? You got it from us. Hebrew is our language. This is our holy book. But you never ask us what it means. And then he 
winked at me and he said, the term God's anger in the Old Testament is much better translated, so say all the rabbis, as God's anguish. God's anguish. And he said, for sometimes you forget that God is love. But once you know that God is love, you know that he has anguish when things break down and tears of sadness, for he is love for us all. A great insight, don't you think? People in self-assessed poor marriages are much less happy than unmarried people, divorced people. People in self-assessed good marriages find great fulfillment and intimacy. People in marriages that are broken down live life in an isolated and lonely and imprisoned way. And I realized that this morning I could be talking, well, we're all different, and I don't know how your circumstances chime into any of this. Let me say this, that at the end of the service, the prayer team's up at the back there where they always are, as it tells you in the, in the news sheet week by week. And if you'd like to pray, just t- take some time to reflect or sit and talk to someone, that, that the team is there, and they'd like to do that for you. But here's the thing about being single. Instead of feeling like, hey, we're missing out, here is the thing. If you're single and would like to be in a relationship, and there are many people who are single who don't want to be in a relationship. You know, the funny thing is, you know, people say, oh, if only she was married. Just imagine what she could do. Oh, I just pray that she gets married. If only she was married. I always say that when people say that. I always think of Mother Teresa. You know, this woman who changed the whole globe. People say, do you know, if only Mother Teresa had got married, just think what she could have become. It's like a ridiculous, vacuous statement from a society that's got everything out of perspective. So, the truth is, if you're a single person and you're seeking a relationship, and that's the important thing, the good news is, you are only one step away from finding the right relationship. Just one step away because you're single. But if you've opted into the wrong kind of partnership and relationship and you're in a marriage that actually you didn't think through wisely in the first place, you're three steps away. Getting through the pain of a breakup, the time to emotionally recover from that instead of heading rushing to something else on the bounce without thinking and then finding the right relationship. So all the advice that tells single people they ought to hurry up and get married or hurry up and find a partner is wrong-headed altogether. Wrong-headed altogether, in my opinion. Picking a life partner is a huge, uh, a huge decision. Oops, that doesn't work. So let's turn. Picking a life partner is a massive, massive decision, a big decision. When you choose someone to marry, you are choosing a lot of things all in one go. You are choosing a parenting partner, perhaps. And that's a lot of hard work. 
trust me. You are choosing an eating companion. I worked this out with my son-in-law, Matt, last night. Um, He's good at maths. He's a maths teacher. And he tells me that on average, if you have a relationship that lasts 40 years, you will eat a minimum of 20,000 meals together. So when you marry someone, you are choosing someone you're going to have 20,000 meals sitting opposite. Choose wisely. (laughs) When you marry someone, you're choosing someone who's going to become your travel partner and your holiday companion for the rest of your life. You're going to spend endless hours and days and weeks going places with with this person. When you choose a marriage partner, you're choosing your primary leisure time partner. When you choose a a marriage partner, you're choosing your retirement friend. When you choose a marriage partner, you're choosing your career's advisor. Choose carefully. Far from being a sweeping um, romantic um, fairy tale, far from just being about Valentine's Day, choosing a partner is about thousands of mundane Wednesdays. Choosing a marriage partner isn't about a short honeymoon in Thailand, though if you uh, get to do that, that's great. Corny and I went in a camber van to South Wales, <laughs> there you go, and came back early because it was raining. We should have known it would be raining before we set out, as, of course. But marriage isn't a honeymoon. It's day four of the 27th holiday you've had together. Marriage isn't about celebrating the closing of the deal to buy your first house or flat. It's having dinner in that house with the same person for the 2,458th time. Marriage isn't about Valentine's Day. It's about every forgettable Tuesday. Choose carefully. So, how do you go about making this decision? It turns out, I think, that there are some factors that work against us really badly. First, the first factor that works against us is that we all tend to, all of us tend to be very bad at working out what we want from a relationship. The reason is that most things in life you get to practice a lot, don't you? So if you are a maths teacher, you practice maths teaching and then you slowly get good at it. You slowly get good at public speaking. Do come to the seminar on Saturday if you'd like. You slowly get good at whatever you practice. But actually the truth is that many people, they have one or two relationships and then they opt into marriage. And they've not thought it through. And all of the research says, again, that people generally say that they were very bad at checking out the right things before they got into uh, a relationship. The next thing is that society gives us some really bad advice. Society encourages us to let romance be our guide. 
Society encourages us to let romance be our guide. And so people say things like, it's love at first sight. I don't know if you believe at love at first sight. I believe in infatuation at first sight. But you cannot fall in love with someone across a room who you've never spoken to just because she or he has got, you know, great legs and a fit body. You can't. You can be infatuated by that person, but you know nothing of their character. Are they loving? Are they honest? Are they kind? Are they other-centered? Are they self-centered? Are they ambitious just for themselves? What's their attitude to money and to children, to other people and to immigration? What do they care about in life? What drives them? You know nothing. You just fancy a piece of meat on the other side of the room. And so many of us, guided by an innate desire for sex, end up in something that we regret from the day after. Charles Dickens got divorced when not many people used to get divorced. And Charles Dickens said this memorably. He said, everybody, he, he said, you, 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 you fall in infatuation with someone and you begin a relationship with them and it's not going very well, you know, and you, but you say, when we get married, it will be fine. And he said this, everybody thinks that marriage shrinks problems. When we're together, we'll sort all this out. But that's a denial of reality. He said, actually, marriage doesn't shrink anything. It's a magnifying glass. Everything that was a bit of a problem will become a huge problem and an issue that needs to be dealt with and thought through. The problem is that when you first find someone, you get drunk on love, drunk on romance, actually. Sometimes, you know, I, I used to do a huge amount of marriage preparation with couples. I do it differently now. Some of you, I'm talking about getting married now. And I often say to couples I'm married, like, come back and see me in six months if you'd like to. But sit down and talk to somebody. Because I used to sit there with couples that were getting married, and there they sit on a couch, you know, talking to me. I, this year's gone past. It's none of you here, because I, I abandoned all this a long time ago. So they're sitting so close to each other, it looks like one person with two heads. Do you know, kind of like, there they sit. They cannot let go of one another. They gaze at one another. They are drunk on love or drunk on romance. And there am I going, you know, um, as you go through life, you're going to find communication difficult. And I can see them thinking, sad old man, he obviously married the wrong person and he's trying to bounce all of his problems onto us. What do you mean we're going to have problems communicating? We are in love. No, you're not. You're drunk on romance. You're infatuated. And that's a problem. Because you shouldn't actually enter into marriage until you wake up and sober up. It's great to be infatuated. I'm not knocking it. It's what our biology does to us and it's what society encourages us over. But somehow you've got to wake up and you've got to take a real assessment uh, for it. Uh, Helen Mirram, who's been married to the same person for 20 years, said this. People get together for reasons other than sex. And although it's important in the beginning, she was talking about sex, for most couples, it's not what makes marriage last. The power of partnership in marriage is under-recognized in our society. That's what makes marriage work, not sex. Helen Mirram of Hollywood tells you this. 
That's what makes marriage work. Desire is not love. Desire is desire and it's a wonderful thing, but it is not love. Do not mistake sexual desire or romantic infatuation for love. They are different. They are different, though both important. Desire lasts a short while. It's only commitment that will hold a marriage together. I spoke at a big gathering of Christians. There were several thousands there. This was a few years ago. And I was speaking on marriage and couples had come along together. And they were sat in a big, big theater, right? <laughs> and um, and um, it was a funny thing because I cracked a few jokes, you know, about marriage and all that kind of stuff. And everybody was laughing. Blah, 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 blah. And then I paused and I said, so I'd like you to turn to your partner and tell them about the first time you fell in love with someone else. And this silence descended across the place and everyone looked at the front and you could cut it with a knife. And so I said, now turn to them and tell them about the first time you were infatuated with someone else since you've been married. You could cut it with a knife because there's a lack of honesty about the difference between desire and love. Marriage is built on the commitment of love, which is about other-centered, not about itself. Desire is about, I want this person. Love is about giving to another person. Society tells us to rush. Huh, 35 and not married yet? What's wrong with you? Sort yourself out. Fear inside us teaches us the same thing. We have a fear of being the last amongst our friends who are single. We've got a fear of being an older parent. You've got to get married quick, have those children quick. We have a fear that the clock is ticking. We've got a fear of being judged or talked about because we're on our own. The irony is that the only fear that we should really have and really feel is the fear of ending up spending the latter two-thirds of our life in an unhealthy partnership with the wrong person. Think about the right things. So what are you looking for in a person? It strikes me that one of the things we've done in our society is we throw out the baby with the bathwater. We believe in individuality. That is the doctrine of the West. We believe that I make my decisions. We believe in autonomy and we laugh at, for it's, I'm half Indian, we laugh at an Indian society that believes in arranged marriages. How repressive can you get that your parents arrange a marriage for you? We are free to be ourselves and to do our own thing. But the truth is, if we want to do anything well in life, we need coaching. And we know that. If you're starting a business, you go get some advice. If you're learning to to drive a car, go get some lessons. If you're learning to set up a charity, speak to someone who's already done it. Whatever you do in life, we know you should speak to people who've been there already. And what's even better than that is someone who's been there already but knows us. So I sit and talk to people who've been there in things I've done in my life already. And I say, tell me about how you do it. And you know me. Tell me about the weaknesses that I might have in this. But when it comes to marriage, we go, oh, well, I just know. And I'm guided by God. Actually, God guides us through community. That's why community is so important. 
So I won't tell you all the obvious things like, do you have fun together? Can you laugh together? Do you share a sense of humor together? Do you have real respect for one another? Do you believe that your partner really respects you? Do you have a decent number of common interests in activities or people, preferences in food? A decent number. Cornelia always tells me that she and I are polar opposite in what we like to eat and all the rest of it. There's endless differences, but do you harmonize together? Do you feel comfortable in one another's presence? Because that feeling of comfort won't creep on once you've been up the front and got some vicar to make that sign in front of you. It will not happen. Do you feel a sense of trust and security? And does your partner accept you and your flaws because you are broken and I am broken? And it's about living with that brokenness all of the time. I um, was going to uh, show you this, which is crept off the top. I don't know why that's crept off the top, just that one. But it's a verse from 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. You know where it's from, you just don't know what it says, right? Well, I think you can always, it says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. That was a piece of advice that Paul gave to uh, the church in Corinth. He, by the way, wasn't talking about marriage. He wasn't talking about marriage at all. He was talking about, it was just talking about partnerships in general. If you read it in context, yank things out of context, use them as things to harangue people with. But the point is this, if you're finding someone in life that you're going to walk with, Find someone that believes in the same stuff as you. Now, my wife, Colleen, she's not here uh, this morning. I'd say this if she was here. So I, um, at the age of 14, had this desire, this, oh, I knew that I should start this thing called Oasis. Well, I didn't know it was called Oasis. A house and a school and a hospital. I knew that it should work in other parts of the world except just the UK. I knew that I should be a church leader. I knew that I should build a church. When I was 14... I got that kind of, I got it all together in my head, you know, one night, a Friday night um, in South London. And then about, well, 10 years after that, I already knew Cornelia, by the way, because she used to go to that youth club. But about 10 years after that, Cornelia and I got married. Now, Oasis, the charity of which this church is part and, you know, which what happens in Belgium is part, Oasis works in 11 countries. It employs around 6,000 people. It kind of turns, you know, huge amounts of money over. There are endless people involved in this. And the funny thing is, there's one person, in all those 6,000 people, there's one person that's never worked for Oasis. It's Cornelia. But there's one person without which Oasis would have never even existed. It's Cornelia. Because as I've traveled around the world and traveled around the country and sat writing endless papers, etc., etc., it's actually been the fact that, generally speaking, because like everybody, every couple, we have loads of ups and downs and, you know, there's tensions and you've got to be able to fight well as love well. You know, that's, that's just, you know, you might be loud in your fighting and you might not, but that's actually life. Don't condemn people. You know, some people say, oh, that couple they're having a rough time oh dear of course they're having a rough time because that's what happens in relationships they ebb and they flow but the truth of the matter is that without Cornelia this church wouldn't exist 
as it does now and you wouldn't be here this morning and this school wouldn't be here and that school wouldn't be across the road and the children's centre wouldn't be there and nothing of what we're doing. We actually, most of us wouldn't know each other if it was not for Cornelia's commitment to serving alongside me. Choose someone who's committed to the things you're committed to in life. And at the beginning, of course, you say, oh, well, we, you know, we have different faiths and we're going in different ways. It's, it's okay because we love one another. Well, that's okay until you have children. And what do you introduce your children to? And what are the values your children are going to live by? And is it maths and English and geography and history that are the most important things in life? Oh, they're very important, I know. But actually, it's character development, and it's a sense of vision and a sense of purpose and a sense of groundedness. And where are they going to get that from unless you are agreed on what that is? There's only one thing you need to be fearful of. It's choosing and reaching in. Ask advice. Let's learn from the East that we don't know everything ourselves. We need to walk together. And as I close, let me say this again. I know that some of you here are in relationships that you think, believe are the wrong ones. Closing illustration. I met a lady one day, many years ago, in a different church that I used to work for. And she came to me and she said, Steve, can you pray with me? It's honestly true. She said, can you pray with me that my husband commits adultery? Uh, that's honestly what she said. And she said, I'm telling you, because I can't tell anyone else around here, but my prayer is that my husband will commit adultery. And I said, why are you, why, why are you praying that? I'd only been in ministry a little while. I said, why do you want me to pray that? And she said, oh, because I've been told here that the Bible says that you can only get divorced if the other partner commits adultery. So I want him to commit adultery so I can get divorced. And I said... So why do you want that so bad? And she said, because for 20 years he's abused me emotionally and I feel like I'm nothing. I feel like he's torn me apart and I'm an empty shell. And I've talked to people and they just say it's your Christian responsibility to stick with him. Let me tell you that we end where we started that what the marriage vows are are about is cherishing and flourishing. And that marriage was already a divorce. And it needed a certificate to prove it, to allow her to move on to something new. God calls us all to be whole in ourselves and to think about our future and to trust him.